to high truths on drugs and addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited for another engaging High Truths episode. We're going to talk about the integration of addiction medicine with medical education in general. Is addiction medicine a specialty like cardiology, the treatment of heart conditions, or dermatology, the management of skin conditions? I'm very proud to be board certified in emergency medicine and addiction medicine, and I will share a bit about the history of these professions. These two medical specialties, emergency medicine and addiction medicine, have a lot in common and then that they intersect all fields of medicine. As an emergency physician, I need to know, first of all, what can kill you and what needs immediate intervention. We have to know this for everything, for internal medicine problems, surgery, orthopedics, pediatrics, obstetrics and gynecology, cancer, etc. In addiction medicine, this specialty involves people addicted to all sorts of medicines, legal or illegal, as well as addiction to gambling, sex, and gaming. Similar to emergency medicine, addiction medicine crosses paths with all other medical specialties, internal medicine, surgery, orthopedics, pediatrics, obstetrics, you get the picture. The other similarities of emergency medicine and addiction medicine is that the birth of these professions, no respecting physician wanted to do that type of work. It was a transient job. Way back when, the emergency room was just that, a room in the dungeon of the hospital where moonlighting physicians would go without any special training and would take call and do their best to treat very sick patients. Standards did not really exist. Now, emergency medicine is not a room, but a department with well-established board certification, research, training, and stringent academic standards. Emergency medicine has transformed to a specialty that's competitive and very well-respected. Addiction medicine is at its infancy, like emergency medicine was years ago, but is gaining speed. More physicians are seeing the rewards of managing patients that previously others would rather avoid. We thank the pioneers of the specialty who for many years were engaged in the field and have paved the way for a new generation of physicians. And speaking of a new generation of physicians, we have one that is calling in to high truths. Let's hear from Becca Miles. Hi, my name is Becca Miles and I'm calling in from Tacoma, Washington as a second year medical student. I just wanted to say thank you so much to High Truths for the educational and interesting podcast. Medical school has been all consuming, but I do make time to listen as I think it's really important. I will soon be starting my clinical rotations in internal med, surgery, pediatrics, and psychiatry. And I'm really wondering how addiction medicine is integrated into these fields. Thank you so much in advance. Becca, 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 have I got an expert for you. You ask about addiction medicine, and I have one that is one of the pioneers of the field of addiction medicine and an educator in addiction medicine, Dr. Anthony Albanese. 
I consider Dr. Albanese, Tony, one of my D.C. pals. They say, if you want to find a friend in Washington, D.C., get a dog. Well, maybe that's true if you're the president of the United States or a high-ranking official or an aspiring cutthroat bureaucrat. But Dr. Albanese and I are simple clinicians, uh, doctors who came to D.C. to serve our country uh, without big competitive government aspirations. So I made a friend in D.C. And let me tell you about my friend. Dr. Anthony Albanese is a gastroenterologist, hepatologist, and addiction medicine specialist who has over 25 years in experience in clinical medicine and medical education. He works at the VA medical centers and their university affiliates to enhance interprofessional faculty education and develop, expand, and enhance graduate medical education in accordance with the Veterans Access, Choice, and Accountability and Missions Act initiatives. That's fancy schmancy talk for he trains doctors. Dr. Albanese is a clinical professor of medicine at the UC Davis School of Medicine and is chief of hepatology division of the VA Northern California Healthcare System based in Sacramento. He's president of the California Society of Addiction Medicine and chairman of the state chapters council of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM. Albanese attended Oral Roberts University for undergraduate and medical school training. He trained in internal medicine in New York at the St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital and continued for gastrointestinal and addiction medicine fellowship. If that was not enough training, he continued and obtained a fellowship in hepatology, diseases of the liver, at the University of Miami. Dr. Anthony Albanese's bio is included in the High Truths show notes. Tony, Dr. Anthony Albanese, welcome to High Truths. Thank you, Renee. It's nice for me to be here. I am really so excited that you are joining me, my friend, and uh, I wish it was like dinner back in D.C., but hey, we have a pandemic, so it's just Zoom. (laughs) We'll do it this way for now. Zoom has given us uh, a lot of uh, opportunities and, uh, you know, a few headaches, but uh, this this is it for now. Right. I know. As a matter of fact, I'd say, you know, we shouldn't have been calling it social distancing. It's physical distancing because we could still be social um, with these technologies. Addiction medicine. Uh, Becca is a second year medical student who called asking about addiction medicine. It's a new profession. And, you know, no doctor our age grew grew up saying, hey, I want to be an addiction doctor one day um, because there was no such thing. Actually, I'm so old that in my medical school class, there was no really anything of emergency medicine, let alone addiction medicine. So what led you to be one of the pioneers in this profession? Well, I have to say um, I'm with you, Renit, in terms of age. And so I got no instruction about addiction medicine or even emergency medicine in in my medical school class either, uh, graduating in 1986. But um, uh, I, it, life can sometimes be like an arrow where you have to aim certain directions. And sometimes it's like a river where the current takes you. And, uh, and addiction medicine found me um, as a third year resident rotating on the wards with my team. Uh, a gentleman approached me, introduced himself as the director of the methadone clinic at my hospital was uh, St. Luke's Roosevelt in New York City. Now it's known as Mount Sinai West. 
and he told me that a lot of folks in his uh, in his methadone clinic had uh, problems with their medical health, with liver abnormalities. I had already chosen gastroenterology as my field and was going to start my fellowship the next year. And so he said, if I worked on the medical problems, he would teach me about addiction. And he kept his promise. Uh, that year, hepatitis C was sequenced and a treatment, the first treatment was discovered. And so um, my interest in addiction started to grow along with my interest in hepatology, which is the study of liver diseases. Over the next couple of years and during my GI fellowship, I continued to moonlight in New York City uh, with the Smithers Addiction Treatment Program, which was the high-class addiction program. And found that some of my heroes growing up in sports and in media uh, struggled with addiction. And I came to realize that this was a disease that affected all populations, not just people who were homeless or, or who were weak-willed or anything like that, but some people who I wanted to be like um, were struggling with addiction. And so uh, that, that interested me even more. And so uh, dealing with the medical aspects of addiction and the psychological aspects of addiction has been my, um, has been my career, my, uh, has been part of my, what I do my entire medical career. Right. Wow. I like your, uh, you know, river and, and arrow uh, analogy. That's definitely uh, applies to me as well. So, uh, Becca, our second-year medical student, is a very inquisitive medical student. Um, she's about to start rotations and asks, how is addiction medicine integrated in, in all these rotations? It reminds me, my, my daughter is also a second-year um, uh, medical student, and she, her very first rotation is psychiatry. And I read the little intro to the rotation. That could be intimidating the very first time you're ever in a hospital actually seeing a patient. And they said, you know, regardless of what profession you're going to choose, all persons in involve the issue of psychiatry. So this is a very important rotation, and that's why it's a mandated rotation. And it really resonated for addiction medicine because it really doesn't matter what rotation you will encounter uh, patients with addiction. Well, I'm going to preface my, my remarks by saying all the comments that I share with you today are my own opinions. They don't represent the VA uh, for whom I am I work, or they, and they don't represent the American Society or California Society of Addiction Medicine, which I'm, uh, I'm an officer in both of those societies. They're my opinions. And so um, I'm, I'm happy and I'm excited for, for Becca. She is... Um, has come to the realization that it took me a long time to come to, which is that um, people with addiction are not different than us. Uh, we all have issues and uh, we can address those issues. We all have to understand that we have strengths and weaknesses and areas in our lives that we need to work on and overcome. And uh, she has seen the similarity uh, uh, to addiction with, with any other uh, human condition that, that we deal with. And that's, I believe, why she's attracted to it. She may or may not have a family member who, who uh, has struggled with a behavioral or a chemical addiction. But uh, there are so many 
easy ways to, to learn about a little more than what she's already been exposed to. I think that the American Society of Addiction Medicine and the annual conferences that they put on, they have one coming up uh, towards the, the end of April. I believe it's uh, April 22nd is when it starts. The California Society of Addiction Medicine has a, has a whole review course starting in, at the end of August this year. And, and getting involved, New York Society has, has a beautiful course that they put on. A lot of different states have, have different courses that they put on that are all available to, to view um, on the ASIM website. And what's interesting about these courses is that they're either free or they're very deeply discounted for uh, students and for residents because it's our goal to see people get exposed to uh, the science and the heart behind addiction medicine. You'll notice that um, in this field, as in many fields in medicine, uh, there are two aspects. There's the intellectual aspect that, that is puzzling to us and the brain chemistry and the neurophysiology of how and why uh, people choose different substances and how that a substance can, can uh, really take precedence over even the most important relationships we have in our lives. And, um, and so th that has its own set of interest. But then there's the heart part also, which is how can I help a struggling person to become functional and become well again? And both of those come into play dramatically in the field of addiction medicine. And so I'm excited for her. Psychiatry is involved, but so is medical, uh, the medical aspect, what I, what I do, um, because uh, really we're very complex individuals from the top down. And I haven't met anybody with, uh, with issues that affect their brain that do not affect the rest of their body. And I haven't met anybody who has an issue with their body that doesn't somehow affect the way they think and the way that they process. So, so, you know, we're, we're big units that are, are very interconnected. That's very true. It's all, uh, we can't, and it's true for the rest of the body. You can't just say, oh, I'm just interested in your heart and not think about the brain and, and other parts. It's all, it's all together. That's what makes a, a good doctor, I think, who knows how to, to in integrate all those aspects. Um, you are an educator, a medical educator at the VA. Are there systems within the VA? And I know that there's a lot of innovations. I think, you know, the VA is one of the leaders in issues of opioids and benzodiazepines and mental health, suicide prevention, things like that. But have do you have formal addiction medicine education within the VA system that you're working on? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, addiction medicine became a specialty actually back in the 1950s when, when doctors uh, with uh, experience treating people with addiction started getting together and saying, hey, maybe we could learn from each other. But it wasn't really until 2016 that the American Board of Medical Specialties accepted addiction medicine as a specialty under the um, parent organization of preventive medicine. And so uh, really since that time, uh, the, the uh, ACGME um, accreditation Accrediting agency, body. 
for graduate medical education um, has has uh, chose to accredit programs um, in addiction medicine. And since that time, since really 2018, when they fir- first accredited programs, there are now about 75 um, programs in addiction medicine across the United States that have received initial accreditation by by the graduate medical education accrediting body. And um, the VA wants to help sponsor uh, residents. And when I say sponsor, I mean pay for, not be it, not be the the sponsoring institution for, but to partner with these sponsoring institutions and to fund education in addiction medicine. In addition to that, addiction psychiatry has been a specialty since the the 1990s, and so uh, so the VA spons- uh, VA pays for again in association with the sponsoring institution, addiction psychiatry fellows, and so currently we have about um, 55 addiction psychiatry fellows in the VA and about 23 addiction medicine fellows uh, that rotate through the VA. So right now it's about uh, overall about 78 total around the country wow. that are, are learning and training at VA, that VA is is uh, partnering with the sponsoring institution and paying for those those people to be educated. And are, are VA patients with addiction have any special um, circumstances that people, you know, outside the VA system uh, don't have? Is it issues of PTSD and um, and service, or is is it you know the disease of addiction is ubiquitous and it doesn't matter where it where it shows up? Well, the disease of addiction is ubiquitous. But it is also, um, you know, it, it, it comes out during times of stress and stressors can certainly exacerbate the uh, use disorders. You know, when people use chemical coping as a way of dealing with their stress. And we see that happen frequently in people who are put in stressful conditions like, like those who serve in the military are. Um, folks who have been deployed overseas, folks who have experienced um, military sexual trauma, folks who have uh, really even been um, uh, stressed in various parts of the training to to enter the military, have have memories that that bring horror to their mind and are very difficult for them to deal with. And uh, one way that people often choose to deal with those those stressful memories, those incidents that we sometimes will call refer to as post traumatic stress, um, is to cope chemically. And it and uh, unfortunately, it doesn't take very long before uh, we start choosing a chemical to cope that we start uh, using that to cope for other stressful situations as well. And so a lot of times it's a huge stressor that, that, you know, if we, if we lined up people and said, would, would uh, being at war overseas be a a huge stressor? And uh, almost nobody would say no to that one Um, to, uh, and the stressors can, will get less and less before we turn to that chemical uh, 
again and you know going out and finding um that your mailbox was broken into all of a sudden is is a, is that that size of a stressor or having a fender bender or um your your tv program not not being on because your internet is down and so what happens is these these huge stressors when we start using chemicals to cope with them um the next time the stressor doesn't have to be as huge to turn to that chemical. And so this is a problem that we see not only in veterans, but really in everybody who has, has addiction. Yeah. Well, it's, it has to be rewarding to serve people who have served our country. Um, It is. I say we have a mission to die for, you know, uh, that's to help people who have, uh, helped us with our, with our uh, standard of living here in the United States and maintain our freedom. And, you know, the adage that freedom isn't free is, is very, very true. And every day is Veterans Day at, at the VA. Oh, that's nice. And I don't think people realize, uh, people may have negative association with the VA, but the, the VA are really leaders when it comes to pain management and addiction and safe prescribing. They've been working on this and have elaborate systems in place way before the rest of the House of Medicine has been doing this. So really, I, when there's some type of protocol uh, of how to do something, I reach out to the VA because I know you've done it already. The, the VA is the largest healthcare system in the United States, treating over 9 million patients. Um, our training is uh, the largest training institution in the United States with over 120,000 trainees. Um, so we do have some economies of size and some things that we've learned because either we've already made the mistakes or and we're trying to solve them or we're uh, still making the mistakes and we're trying to solve them. Um, but yeah, yes, there are some economies that we get uh, with relationship to our size and the energy and effort that we put into quality improvement. And, and you had a special opportunity with the VA to, to go to DC and work on a systems level. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I work for the uh, VA office of academic affiliations and we partner with, uh, with, uh, a couple thousand different sponsoring institutions for uh, graduate medical education, medical and dental, plus 17 um, health fields that, that we pay for, plus another, uh, another 20, it's about 23 that we, we don't pay for, but we just provide training opportunities, plus nursing and, and um, training at an undergraduate and a graduate level. And so uh, we, we do a, a lot of training at the VA and the, the mission is to train um, people to care for veterans and to care for the needs of the nation. So our goal is not just to um, keep the VA hospitals and the VA medical centers fully staffed, but it's also to train for the nation and to uh, provide an opportunity for, uh, for people to learn and then move out. And, uh, and practice in all different environments and rural environments and, uh, you know, urban underserved environments and really wherever they want to go. And you, your work was creating curriculum or manpower? My work was, uh, has been in, in both of those. 
areas, but uh, particularly in taking uh, congressional uh, mandates that have been uh, public laws uh, and and turning and making those happen, being a subject matter expert and um, being being the person who actually takes that those those laws and turns them into um, to operating programs. And wow. particularly the Veterans Access Choice and Accountability Act and the VA Mission Act uh, are, are two of the programs that, that we're, we've been working pretty hard on. That's great. And and made a big difference, big changes too. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, have been able through the VA, uh, uh, through, through the Veterans Access Choice and Accountability Act to add close to 1,500 new positions for medical residents throughout the United States and um, have some other pilots that we're, we're working on too that um, are, are going to be very exciting for rural areas and for underserved areas. Very nice. And your leader, you have leadership with the VA and in medicine, but also um, you are president of the California Society of Addiction Medicine. I am. That's quite a pre. Okay, Mr. President. <laughs> um, <laughs> hail to the chief. Uh, um, and 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 you know what a California Society of Addiction Medicine CSAM um, is known for for me is they have an amazing board review exam and so thank you very much because I took that course and I passed so uh, I can vouch for that. We had but, very uh, little doubt that was going to happen, Rini. I, I had. I doubt. think you were more worried about that than anybody <laughs> it, else it, was. It stresses me out. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I'm glad to have it behind me. But uh, so, but tell us about CSAM. It's, you know, one, it's maybe the largest chapter uh, for the American Society of Addiction Medicine. I know, I imagine that because I used to be president of California ASAP, you know, the analogy of um, the American College of Emergency Physician California chapter. So I know that you are active in legislation and advocacy, education, but can you tell us a little bit some of the things that you're working on or that are important to CSAM and ASAM? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I think one of the things that is at the forefront really um, for both organizations is to understand our role in systemic racism, to understand uh, how we can align our society, our society leadership, and our are treating physicians to and and treating, you know, providers because now, ASAM and CSAM uh, are not just physician organizations. They include, uh, they include other professionals who who are licensed into independent practitioners, and uh, including nurse practitioners and physician assistants, along with psychologists. And, and others who, who treat. So it's, it's really to help us to, uh, to promote diversity and inclusion to look like the group of people that we're treating. I think that is absolutely the first and foremost um, goal of our societies right now is to align, align our treaters with our, our, our patients. I think other things we're working on is is to help people to understand uh, about the opioid epidemic in the United States, that it's not just an opioid epidemic, it is an addiction epidemic. Uh, 
And when we talk about people who have uh, opioid use disorder, we're talking about 2 million people. When we're talking about alcohol use disorder, we're talking about 20 million people. And so it's a, it's a, it's a problem that's about 10 times that of, of opioids. Opioids have come to the forefront because of the overdose issues and the fact that um, fentanyl and other illicit opioids uh, have gotten into the country uh, and do regularly and cause a risk of accidental overdose. Um, and so, you know, here in the last year, we've had uh, over 81,000 overdose deaths in the United States, uh, which is more than any other year before. COVID probably had something to do with that. The, the numbers were trending down before COVID. But I think understanding that, that we have pharmacotherapies available now to treat people with alcohol use disorder and with opioid use disorder, and that uh, the first thing that people have to do is to um, uh, be willing to come in. And that has to do with stigma. People often don't want to come and see a physician for their uh, for these issues because uh, there's such horrible stigma associated with ha having an, an, an illness, a medical illness, and uh, helping people to understand that they're not an addict, they're not um, you know weak-willed, they're not uh, you know dirty, all right, but they have an issue, like we all have issues that that can be addressed medically and um, they can step forward and, and get treatment. And so reducing stigma is big and important because we want people to get pharmacotherapy and get treatment for, um, and, and not just pharmacotherapy, but behavioral therapy too, and get treatment for their, their um, use disorders, their behavioral um, addictions, so to speak too, and um, to not be ashamed of them. And, um, and uh, so, so those are those are pr probably the big things. We're also looking for um, some ability to reach into the community better than we have been able to reach into the community. Um, we still have laws preventing um, safe injection sites where uh, where we we could potentially reach a hand out to people who are not ready to stop yet. But, uh, you know, data from other countries shows that, that every year uh, between 25 and 30% of people who, who go to a, an injection site like that do end up seeking help. And um, wasn't there a project in San Francisco with a safe injection site? Wasn't there a problem and it was not successful, a pilot project there? It was, uh, there was a, 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 a a place that that built a prototype injection uh, safe injection site and it and it uh, never materialized because of uh, of a threat of of um, federal action against that site and so mm -hmm. the data that I'm talking about really comes out of Vancouver Canada and some other places in the world where people who find a place where they're accepted for who they are. Um, and they once they get get comfortable with that, they uh, are become comfortable in in seeking help when they're ready. And um, you know we we have other examples of that around the United that are uh, legal in the United States, like housing first initiatives, where when we're trying to address 
um, people who have addiction and people who are homeless. You know, we say, well, what do you do first? Do you uh, make them make them have to be sober and then be in sober facilities and then they can enter a sober facility? Or do you find them housing first? Now the, the data is overwhelmingly supportive of housing first because people don't care. You're going to like the, the episode on with Ben Carson. I have an episode with Paris Carson. That's exactly what he says. Housing first, second, third. Absolutely. You know, after, you know, we, we know that from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Food, clothing, shelter, um, being being absolute number one in our mind before we're, we're even ready to consider other things. And so, uh, you know, the, the I think companionship is in that and learning that, that there you can have a safe environment before you're interested in making changes in your life. And so uh, that's where, uh, you know, needle exchange programs come in and uh, safe injection sites come in. So harm reduction is really Harm reduction. For? Thank you for, for yeah. uh, using, <laughs> using one word to, you know, encapsulate about 14 of my sentences. <laughs> no, no. And I, I think for the first time, the Office of the National Drug Control Policy now under Biden has um, harm reduction as a priority which it hasn't been in, in the language before. Yeah. Um, I, you know what I thought you would say when I said what the priorities is, as soon as COVID hit, I saw amazing work by the uh, uh, Addiction Society um, in, in promoting telehealth, in meeting, under, you know, um, there was a, a, a gap in services. And I don't know if that gap has been closed uh, with, with COVID. Um, but I think that, that that's something that, that you guys have been working on. Oh, yes. Um, and I'm glad you brought that up also, because um, one of the things we saw right away in COVID was a, was a disconnect. Um, there were some states that, that, you know, would never have seen an, an alcohol retailer as an essential business. But when, when we were at a place where uh, treatment centers and places where people congregate are, were closed. And again, saying, telling you the number of people who have alcohol use disorder in the United States being around 20 million, here, here was a group of people that uh, had no access to resources because they were closed down and then no access to alcohol. And um, that put them really in trouble, in physical trouble. And um, people who have gotten used to coming in for their uh, pharmacotherapy for their opiate addiction, either methadone or buprenorphine um, or, or, or naltrexone or something, and then, and then not, not having access to that. And so opening up telemedicine to allow prescriptions for patients established and then for new patients to be done using telemedicine was really, um, you know, a big, a big plus. And what, what we found as, as we started our, our talk today about, about Zoom meetings mm-hmm. um, and about uh, the type of meeting like we're having now, uh, we found that, that this opened up a whole new world of people who would never uh, make the effort to enter a, a physician's office or a provider's office. Uh, because of of fear and stigma and other things, but we're willing to access medical care through a telemedicine format. And so really, uh, you know, th- some some good has come of of um, this horrible situation of a pandemic. 
and the good is that that we are reaching into areas that of people that we never would have been able to reach into before because of uh, of uh, legal and other barriers. Yeah, this is, you know, definitely one of the, and you have to look for these civil, silver linings because we are living in a in a strange, difficult time um, for so many people. And um, we have to look at that silver lining. And I think telemedicine uh, is one of those things in it. And, and we won't be going back. It's not going to go away. Um, it's just, it'll just be improved upon. That's um, the goal. That's the goal. Yeah. And that's, that's another one of our issues for, for um, addiction medicine is to see uh, for, for both the American society of addiction medicine and the California society is to see that these things continue to move forward and expand. And, and we don't have a, um, you know, relapse of behavior from a legal standpoint and say, okay, now, now the emergency is over and you have to go back to business the way it was before and us see a lot of the gains that we have been able to make in terms of reaching new new populations in new areas, see those lost again. Yeah, like that. Like addiction is a chronic relapsing disease of the brain, but uh, laws and regulations shouldn't be chronic relapsing problems. Exactly. <laughs> we need to move on to that. Speaking of which, um, one of those laws is uh, the X waiver, um, the restriction government places on prescribing medications for uh, uh, assisted treatment, such as buprenorphine. Um, eight-hour course uh, for doctors, 24 hours for nurse practitioners or physician assistants. We had a break from that, you know, um, in between administrations. We were able to have, any doctor was able to prescribe, and then uh, government had a chronic relapsing uh, disease <laughs> of governance and went back to the old ways. But really, the genie's out of the bottle. Who's going to want to do that knowing that it's really not necessary and and um, I want to know what's your personal position and what's, uh, and does ASAM and CSAM, the addiction medicine organi medical organizations, do they have a position on that? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you um, that, that what I'd personally like to see, and I believe uh, ASAM and CSAM would, would agree with this, is that training pharmacotherapy for addiction become a standard training in medical school, like pharmacotherapy for other medical diseases. And uh, one of the, the big reasons why the X waiver is necessary is because as we were mentioning before, we didn't have that training uh, during our years in medical school. It just wasn't there. And um, you are quite a bit younger than I am for those of you who no, are listening and, and don't, uh, don't realize that. I just that have I'm a little more hair. And she's, <laughs> and she's not, <laughs> um, but anyway, um, you know, what, we're, what we want is for people who are coming out now to be getting that training in medical school mm -hmm. and, um, the double AMC, uh, the organization that, uh, that is involved with medical education and, and we, they want to see it. We want to see it. Everybody really wants to see that education pushed down to all uh, people who graduate from medical school and not only medical school, but from PA school and from nurse practitioner programs so that it's not a, uh, you have that you have to take an additional training, but it's part of your general training. In that case, right. we, there's no need for the additional training. 
Right. And the co- the medical community rises to the occasion. Can you imagine if there was an eight-hour course to treat COVID because it's a new disease and we don't know how to do that? It's like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't I don't know how to do that. Exactly. Um, at this at this point, it, it did serve a purpose. You know, there is a transition that, you know, Great. there's a time for everything. It did serve a purpose. Um, but at, right now it's a hindrance, not not an asset. And and actually it's stigmatizing, I think, because it gives physicians like, well, well, I don't instead of saying, I don't want to treat those patients, they're able to say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have an X-Favor. I don't want those patients. It's like, well, wait a second, you're treating their diabetes, you're treating their high blood pressure, you're 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 taking care of their, you know, podiatry needs with referrals. Why can't you, why do they have to go somewhere else for this? You, you, um, you bring up such a good point, which was really the waiver uh, from the X-Favor was to waive the Harrison Narcotics Act which was uh, enacted, I believe it was 1914, to prevent physicians from using heroin to treat people who had heroin addiction and morphine addiction. And so um, really it was, uh, you know, its day has come and gone and yet it's still on the books. That's right, another chronic relapsing legal problem. I like that to think of. (laughs) And so the waiver (laughs) was to waive the Harrison Narcotics Act of 2014 uh, for for people, but you know now that we do have good treatments available, now that we understand uh, you know more behaviorally and also more um, you know pharmacodynamically and um, what's happening from a neurological standpoint uh, that that it's it's not people trying to get high, it's people trying to get normal. That there this cycle does not only involve a a positive reinforcement. There's the negative side of the cycle where people are, are, are feeling, um, horrible with no energy and, and really unable to, to have any motivation without using the medication to, um, to, to prevent the, the negative aspect of, of, of the, of the addiction. So, it was, you know, we, we know so much more than we knew back in, in, uh, 1914 that it's time to move on to where we use pharmacotherapy like we do for other medical illnesses. That's right. Yeah. If we're saying it's a, a disease that's a chronic and relapsing like asthma or diabetes or high blood pressure, then we should be able to treat it like that. Right. Um, talking, let's talk something controversial. I think a, a, a controversial subject in our country today is marijuana. Some people are, you know, want to legalize it. It's medicinal for everything. And, and there are others who are very, very much against it. Um, but ASAM has published guidelines just recently about marijuana, really kudos for tackling a very difficult um, problem. Right. And, and, and I think that uh, we, we as, as um, treaters of people with addiction don't ever want to really find ourselves coming against uh, a, a substance, right? The substance uh, has no morality associated with it. We want to help people who have issues where they develop use disorders. We also care about children whose uh, brains can be uh, changed permanently by, by certain substances. And we don't want that to, we don't want to see that happen. We are believers in research and following the research, not in, in creating policy based on 
um, uh, what feels good, what feels good or what, what uh, somebody's idea of morality is. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I think that's important is safety of, for the public. And so, um, you know, really, uh, setting boundaries for, for marijuana use, uh, that, that makes sure that, that money spent on that is, uh, directed towards treatment, especially treatment of underage users to make sure that underage users are protected, to make sure the public is protected. And, uh, you know, the idea of, of the marijuana, uh, DUI, you know, has, has surfaced and is surfacing in states where, where it is legal. And what we're finding overwhelmingly is that uh, very few people actually own, have only marijuana DUI. What they, what they have is polysubstance and that marijuana is one of those substances. I'm going to call it cannabis um, because that's the kind of the term that a lot of people are, are using as the, the, the major term now. But, um, but that uh, cannabis ends up being a substance that people don't think of as causing impairment, but it does. And when they add it to a drink or two or, or a medication that they take or a other, another drug that they take, uh, we're, we're finding it's additive disastrous consequences. Correct. Yeah. Why wouldn't be, I mean, and, and you know, this from working with the VA, how many years have you worked on opioid and benzodiazepines or opioids and sleeping pills? And these drugs are additive. Why do people think that marijuana is not additive? It's it's the same, you know, it's a sedative like all the other one. It's additive. Exactly. And sometimes even more than additive, you know, um, uh, as a gastroenterologist, um, I try to induce um, amnesia in people uh, by, because people don't want to remember what their colonoscopy felt like. And so yeah. we, Thank you for that. we do, yes, what we do before the colonoscopy is to give them a combination of, of a benzo sedative and an opioid. And we give them together because that, that combination causes integrate amnesia and it's safe in the endoscopy suite because there's a nurse whose job is to monitor that anesthesia. And we have pulse oximeters and blood pressure monitors and a staff that's that's being observant. But at home, it's not safe because uh, somebody could take, take the pills, uh, uh, fall asleep, wake up and see the pills by their bedside and not remember that they just took them 15 or 20 minutes ago and take more and, and seen that happen. fall back asleep and then wake up and see the pills by their bedside and take more because they forgot they took them. And, and so uh, the combination sometimes is additive and sometimes it's logarithmic what happens when you, when you mix sedatives and marijuana is a part of that equation too. Yes, it is. So, yeah. So, and I, I like things in the report too, like um, uh, very clear guidance that marijuana should not be used to treat opiate use disorder. I hear a lot of um, methadone clinics saying, well, maybe we should start using cannabis. Or I just reviewed a, a, a medical board review that the doctor was very proud that he's going to start using alternatives to opiates such as marijuana. And, and, uh, and I think that the fact that you have this guidelines and clearly say not to use marijuana, and I say marijuana or cannabis, um, it's really the same thing. I think the mar- 
marijuana industry found that the word marijuana doesn't sound so good. So they, <laughs> cannabis sounds more medical, a cleaner look. Um, so, what, but whatever, that should not be used. Those chemicals should not be used to treat opioid use disorder. Well, we know that opioid use disorder is a brain chemistry problem. And uh, using another medication that, that has the same effects on, on brain chemistry that can cause um, a chemical coping to occur. And then after that chemical co coping, a, uh, a dependence or a misuse or a use disorder um, to occur, that one use disorder does not treat another use disorder. And so we, we, we know that. And if, if, if we, any of us ever saw that on a test, we would know immediately what the right answer was, but yet some people feel that. And I think one of the reasons they do, Renit, is that there's a lot of confusion between pain as a, um, as, as a craving symptom and pain as, as, as its own problem. And like we were talking about in the beginning of this show, uh, we're very complex that have mind-body connections that, that uh, th there's no way to avoid them. And I've you know, often told people, uh, my patients, when they say, doctor, are you saying the pain's in my head? I remind them that people with no heads have no pain. Um, <laughs> and, and the idea of a person's body physically calling them back to a drug um, they don't understand that, that this is uh, different than somebody who has um, uh, a, a, a primary pain problem because everybody who has, um, who has uh, a chemical coping with, with these drugs of, of um, the, the self-reinforcing drugs has pain when, when they enter their, uh, their withdrawal from that drug and when they entered the phase of uh, of first post-acute phases of abstinence their body calls them back to that drug and some of them including only, marijuana including marijuana that's correct yeah yeah anxiety so, and 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 different different types of uh, back and um and extremity pain and headaches right so ASAP is involved in treatment of addiction, really promoting treatment. But is there work on, on prevention, primary prevention? I, I give the analogy of my husband, who's a, a dentist, and he fixes broken teeth. But he also promotes, you know, brushing and flossing and, and fluoride to prevent, you know, needing dental work. Well, um, we, have, we have very, very good data uh, now and very good evidence that there is a correlation between any all substance use disorders mm -hmm. and adverse childhood events. And um, we understand that there are genetic components to why people choose drugs and, and which drugs they choose and whether their behavior their addictions are are behavioral or chemical. But by far and away the strongest correlation is between children who are who are very young and have adverse childhood events and who have um, grow up with these abnormal coping skills because they've had parents who are um, who use drugs themselves who have severe mental health issues that are untreated who uh, 
practice verbal, um, physical, or sexual abuse, um, and or I should say, who perpetrate those those types of abuse on their children, um, and uh, you know, parents who are incarcerated, parents who have very limited coping tools. Um, and have difficulty coping with the world themselves, much less helping their children cope with the world. And uh, that, that children who grow up in those situations are at the highest risk for um, a substance use disorder. So, yeah, I agree. And, and whether kids have had adverse childhood events or not, I think um, there's an important role that we have as a society to protect our youth from exposure. And uh, so any work uh, you or ASAM, CSAM does in, in prevention, I think is, is very important, especially coming from addiction medicine professionals. And then we also have data from the uh, National Study for Drug Use and Health, which is a study that's performed annually. And uh, when they go back and they look and they, they ask the question, of people who admittedly, who, who self-admit that they have problems with alcohol. And they say, when did you first start using alcohol? And, uh, and the, still the most common answer uh, of people who, who admit that they have a problem is under the age of 14. Yeah. And that yeah. as the, yeah. And as the age gets older and older of first use, the uh, percentage of people who have problems uh, that develop into use disorders gets less and less. Right. So it's so important to, to protect them. Um, do you have uh, advice for our medical student, Becca, as she starts her clinical rotations? By the way, I don't think she's going wants to do it, uh, addiction medicine. I don't know. Second year students don't always know. She thinks she wants to do orthopedics. We'll wish her well regarding what she, she chooses, but it, it's pretty impressive that she thinks about this topic. Well, What's your advice to her? My, my advice to Becca is number one, there's never a wrong door. We have um, people oh. in, in ASAM, uh, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, who are orthopedists. We have people who are obstetricians. We have people who are pediatricians. And so there's, we have to create a situation where there's no wrong door for somebody who's got, a, who's got this medical problem. And orthopedics is a classic entry, entry point because, you know, when your brain isn't is impaired, you make decisions that you might not otherwise make. And sometimes those decisions um, show up in the orthopedist's office or in the emergency room. And so what I would recommend would be for her to go on either the, uh, the California Society of Addiction Medicine, CSAM-ASAM website, um, and look up our meeting coming up, or, or really uh, the ASAM website, to look up the meeting that's coming up in, in April and to join the meeting and to learn from the experts. Um, again, these are either offered at no cost to uh, some students or to at a, at a very, very reduced cost so that people can, can get a sense of, of, uh, of uh, the learning, the learning that happens, our, our sense of medical knowledge, where we're at currently, what training opportunities are available. And for her to, to uh, take a couple of days to invest a couple of days in, in uh, one of the courses to uh, see, see how much interest is there. You know, interestingly, um, Renit, uh, 
addiction medicine as a specialty is one that, that can be entered from any, any specialty. If you have a board eligibility in any specialty, you are eligible to take the fellowship in addiction medicine. We've had people from surgical subspecialties sign up to take, um, to do an, one extra year of, of addiction medicine. We've had people from psychiatry, people from emergency room uh, sign up to do uh, the extra year because they realize that this is going to make up about possibly between uh, 15 and 20% of the people they see in their practice in general. And they've got the choice of either um, trying to eliminate that group of people from their practice, um, struggling with that group of people, or taking a little bit of time early to learn how to address their issues. And so a lot of people in medicine, a lot of compassionate people who who are in various specialties choose that that decision. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. Those courses and those conferences, you have who's who in the field of addiction medicine, and really you get the best of the best of the education. If you have an opportunity um, as a student to a- attend them, it is worth its weight in gold, And uh, I think. Um, I, I agree with you. And um, Becca, I really want to thank you for your question and for your life commitment into entering the medical profession. It takes a lot of sacrifice and service. And uh, both uh, Dr. Albanese and I can assure you that it's well worth it. And I know that you're going to excel in your clinical rotations and you'll have an edge really because of your interest and understanding of addiction and a problem that you're going to see in every single one of your rotations. So really good luck to you, Becca. And Tony, Dr. Albanese, thank you really for your expertise here on High Truths and your leadership with the Veterans Administration and with CSAM and with ASAM, um, the Society of Addiction Medicine. I really wish you a lot of success as you navigate advocacy and balancing what's best for patients and what's best for the profession. And uh, I know that we're all um, grateful and and blessed to be in your hands. Thank you, you, Renee. And I look forward to the time that we can see each other in person again, too. So wishing you the best and have a great day. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.